Let's pray together. Our Father, you tell us that your word is a lamp for our feet, light for our path. It's, it's through meditating on your word that we know how to walk and to, to know what pleases you. We pray that you will give us understanding into your word. May we see ways that we should each apply it. May we have a more of a confidence in the work of your Holy Spirit to bring this word more and more into our lives. We would ask these things for the honor of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. would invite you to turn in the, if you have the announcement sheet that's printed there, Westminster chapter 22, the first, uh, I believe it's only the first five paragraphs. We're only going to look tonight at the first two. But then also open God's word, Matthew 5, 33. Reading first, just the first two sections of Westminster 22, Unlawful Oaths and Vows. A lawful oath is a part of religious worship in which, on an appropriate occasion, the person taking the oath solemnly calls upon God to witness what he asserts or promises and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he swears. The name of God is the only name by which men should swear, and they should do so with all holy fear and reverence. Therefore, to swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and fearful name, or to swear at all by any other thing, is sinful and to be abhorred. Yet since in matters of weight and great importance an oath is warranted by the word of God under the New Testament as well as under the Old, therefore a lawful oath ought to be taken when imposed in such matters by lawful authority. In the book, Spy the Lie, former CIA officers teach you how to detect deception. The authors report that the average person lies 10 times every 24 hours, including the so-called white lies to avoid being hurt or to avoid conflict. The authors tell us that most people will lie to you if they believe it's in their best interest to do so, and they're more likely to lie if they think that they can get away with it. We're not really surprised by that because we've become used to people lying. The unbelieving world in which we live needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. They accept lying as a normal part of life. What an important chapter this is in the Westminster on oaths and vows. I wonder if the confession were being written from scratch today, if there would be inserted a chapter on oaths and vows. It's important to define terms. They're not exactly the same. There's a, to be precise, oath is a solemn vow that we take between people. It's horizontal. And this section in the confession, sections one through four, is focusing on oaths. Vow is a solemn promise that we take before God, vertical. 
And sections five through seven deal with that. A vow is to be made to God and not to any created being. But in common English, we use them so interchangeably, they're almost as synonyms. And so section five says, a vow is similar in nature to a promissory oath and ought to be made with the same religious care and be performed with the same faithfulness. So we're not going to be, continue, we're not going to be considering the distinctions between oaths and vows. We're going to be considering them clumped together. But to understand the oaths and vows, how important it is, we must understand there's something behind that. And that's to understand that God requires from believers that we keep our word all the time. We're going to be looking at scripture tonight to see that God requires that we keep each word because of who he is. He demands truth. And secondly, we're going to look at God requires that we keep each word always because when does he demand us to speak the truth? And thirdly, our God requires that we keep each word seriously because how he enforces truth. First of all, our God requires that we keep each word because of who he is. He demands the truth. He is the faithful and the true God. All three persons of the Godhead have the attribute of truth. God the Father is truth, Deuteronomy 7, 9. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God. He is the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Faithful, the heart of that word is to be assured. It comes from the language of a parent holding a toddler, and you're not going to drop the toddler. You're not going to drop the child. Why is God faithful? Because he's utterly true. He's utterly reliable. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The sovereign Lord, holy and true, just and true, are all your ways, Revelation 6 and Revelation 15. God the Father is truth. God the Son is truth. John 1, 14, he is full of grace and truth. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him, John 14, 6. Jesus Christ is holy and true. He is the true witness, the book of Revelation. He's the word that's come from the Father, and he is grace and truth. God the Holy Spirit is truth. In fact, that is his name. He is the spirit of truth, John 15. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, John 16, 13. It's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for him to be unfaithful. He is truth. He cannot be untruth. God is not a man that he should lie, Numbers 23, 19. God who cannot lie, Titus 1, 2. Hebrews 6, 17, it's impossible for God to lie. Impossible. Even once, even in the smallest way, if he lied once, he's not faithful, he's not God. He who promised is faithful, Hebrews 10, 25. What a comfort would it be if God gave lots of promises, but there's no assurance that he's going to keep them. But he is utterly faithful. He will always keep his word and promise. That's what anchors our hearts to God, anchors our hearts to his word. When you have doubts about your salvation, where do you look? I hope you don't look inside. 
The answer is not to look inside, do reflection. Do I have more feelings of the closeness of God, a deeper analysis of my faith? Do I need to understand more? Was I sincere enough? Is my obedience good enough? You don't look inside, you look outside. The assurance of your salvation is not inward, it's outward. It's to know that God cannot lie. Jesus has promised, all who come to me I will not drive away. Is he a liar? He's not a liar. God has said that he loves the whole world and he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe that? Will God lie? He will not lie. You believe his promises. That's the assurance of your salvation. You look to the character of God. He's the faithful. He's the true God. This is why the scripture says over and over again that the Lord abhors falsehood. It's, it's contrary to his very nature. The Proverbs 6, the six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him. And in that list, how many are speaking falsely and false oaths, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, a false witness who utters lies and who spreads strife among brothers. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, Proverbs 12, 22. Our God requires that we keep each word because who he is demands truth. And secondly, our God requires that we keep each word always. It's because when he demands the truth, he demands the truth at all times. Here we come to Matthew 5 and follow as we read Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Jesus said, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil or from the evil one. We're going to look at what Christ is not condemning and then what is he condemning and what is he requiring? What Christ is not condemning, the taking of oaths and vows per se. The Anabaptists, particularly the Quakers, have read these verses in Matthew 5, and, and therefore they will not take any oaths at all, even in a court of law. They base it on this. Well, didn't Jesus say never take an oath in any shape, in any circumstance? That's not what Jesus is saying. As the Confession summarizes Scripture, section 2, yet since in matters of weight and great importance, an oath is warranted by the word of God under the New Testament as well as under the Old Therefore, a lawful oath ought to be taken when imposed in such matters by lawful authority. How do we know that Jesus is not condemning all oaths and vows? Well, for several reasons. One is that our God is an oath-taking God. He's given us a pattern for us to follow. Psalm 132:11. the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. Hebrews 6.18, since it was none greater to swear by, he swore by himself. Two immutable things, his promise and his oath, it's impossible for God to lie. And we know that Christ took oaths. 
So solemnly giving his word and an oath cannot be sinful. Remember at his trial, the high priest required Christ to answer. He was silent and finally the high priest put him under an oath. Christ didn't object that taking an oath was sinful. It was only then that he broke his silence and he responded. In fact, whenever Christ in the gospel speaks verily, verily, truly, truly, he's using oath language. And the godly throughout all of scripture take oaths and vows and they're blessed for it. The apostle Paul took oaths under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he took an oath. Romans 9, 1 through 3, he calls God as his witness. Abraham made Abimelech take an oath. Jacob from Joseph, Joseph from his brothers, Jonathan from David. The scriptures are full. The law of God never forbids the taking of oaths and vows. In fact, rather, it commands us to take vows in certain circumstances. Quote, fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him. Take your oaths in his name. Deuteronomy 10, 20. Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Psalm 76, 11. Scripture never forbids the taking of oaths. Rather, it blesses us when we take oaths in his name. Jeremiah 4, 2. And so we rightly take oaths and vows. Professions of faith, baptisms, ordinations, weddings, and even in common life. Christ is not condemning the taking of oaths and vows per se. What is he doing? But there's a negative, but there's a positive. First, the negative. What, what is Christ doing? He's condemning the loopholes in keeping your word. He's condemning levels of obligation. Keep your finger here and turn over to Matthew 23. Page 828, Matthew 23, verses 16 through 22. Listen to what he says to the Pharisees. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And if you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Jesus Christ is condemning levels of truth. During the dispersion, the Jews have become notorious liars, especially in the market to the rabbis even, actually taught that all promises were not binding. And the Pharisees had this whole system worked out. If you took an oath, but you didn't use God's name, you could break it. If you took an oath by the temple, well, you could break that. As long as you didn't make an oath by the gold of the temple. If you took an oath by the altar, you could break that. As long as you didn't take an oath by the gift on the altar, that was binding. They had a whole system. And Jesus is wiping it away. It's like a child today saying, oh, I know I said I would, but I had my fingers crossed. I know that's what I said, but you don't get it in writing. Christ is condemning all levels of truth so we can find ways to wiggle out of keeping our word. 
Jesus condemned the Pharisees. Heaven is God's throne. Jerusalem's his city. He numbers the hairs on your head. You're never going to be outside of the presence of God as the witness of what you're saying. All speech is the same. If you think, well, I, I tell the truth and the big stuff. I report accurately my 1040. And I keep legal matters and contracts and But the everyday stuff, my word, sort of sloppy, that's what the Pharisees were doing. Well, we're going to pick and choose. The big stuff, we'll keep. Other stuff, there's wiggle room. And Jesus is condemning it all. There's to be no loopholes in keeping a word. That's the negative. Saying the same thing in the positive, what's he doing? Jesus is not saying, don't ever take an oath and vow. What Jesus is doing, he's he's raising all speech as the same as an oath and a vow. He's raising all speech up to that level. Is there a difference between your wedding vows and what you said to the kids in the car driving to school? We're going to have ice cream after we get home from work. Is there any difference in what you've said? Well, before God, there's the same level of truth. Yes, public vows are more solemn and they're legal. But Jesus here is is raising all speech up to the level of vows. He's erasing a distinction of what can be broken. There's no legalism that's going to make some speech more binding than others. Everything that you say is as binding as an oath. In fact, it is. So when he says in Matthew 5, 37, let your word be yes, yes, no, no. James says the same thing, James 5, 12. But above all, which means give this earnest consideration. This is, there's gravity here, folks. There's real weight in what I'm saying, my brothers. Do not swear by heaven or earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnations. Both James and Jesus are not saying that you can only say yes and no, but they're saying, if you say yes, let it be yes. You're not to speak with any form of equivocation or hidden meanings or slippery speech. Jesus says when that happens, verse 37, Satan's present. There's no hair-splitting differences and promises. There's no legalese. There's no slippery words. There's no word games. There's no wiggle worm. Your word is enough. So a Christian should never say, you can trust me on this. I'm telling you the truth, honestly. Don't ever say that because everything you say is supposed to be honest. You should never have to take an oath to be trusted. You should never have to put it into writing. You should never hesitate to put it into writing. Because you're no more bound by the written word than the spoken word. Christians must never use language of, I swear before God. As if you're dragging God language now into your promise, it's going to make it a different category. God is the witness to everything you say. Everything has been raised to the level of oaths, and vows. 
My observation today is that, sadly, uh, many people today, when they say that they'll do something, they don't really mean that they're going to do it. They mean they're going to give it their best effort. When they say they're going to do something, they really mean, I'm going to give it a good try. But if it doesn't work, oh well, I tried. That isn't the biblical concept of giving your word. If you give your word, you're going to keep it. And yet people say, well, I'll be at the meeting. It's on the calendar. But then they don't show up. Something else came up. I overbooked. Yes, I'll have that assignment to you. Project is due 9 o'clock. Deadline comes, goes. It's not there. Oh, I tried. I'm sorry. For many people, when they say, I promise, what they really mean is, I'll give it a good attempt, but there's no guarantee. How many couples have taken wedding vows? I will be faithful to you until death. But then later on, this relationship's too hard. And I don't feel in love anymore. So we'll go our different ways. Is that what God means to you when he's promised to you in his word? Hopefully, I'll come through, but you know. If we believe in a God who absolutely keeps every one of his promises all the time, that's our standard. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13.8. Would you keep your bank if that was the way they treated their promises? Yeah, we know we promised you a five percent return on that CD, but you know, we didn't invest very wisely, so we're only going to give you one percent. When we take oaths, we're promising not our best attempt, we're promising by God's grace to keep our word. So when we solemnly promise to participate faithfully in the church's worship and service, to submit in the Lord to its government, to heed its discipline, even in case you be found delinquent or doctrine or life, we're taking an oath that when an elder comes to us and opens scriptures to us, not his own opinions, but scriptures, we're, going, we're taking an oath. I will humbly listen and receive and repent before God's word. If we believe in a God who absolutely keeps every one of his promises all the time, that's our standard. Our God requires that we keep each word because of who he is. He demands the truth. We, our God requires that we keep each word always because he's always demanding the truth. And third, our God requires that we keep each word seriously because how he is enforcing the truth. God is the witness to every word. He's the judge of every word. And he's the redeemer to pay for every broken word. God is the witness to every word. What we read in Ecclesiastes 5 earlier this evening, Ecclesiastes 5, 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger, it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hand? 
In, in context, it's important to, to note that the vow was voluntary. This was not required. It was a voluntary vow that you've made to God to do such and such and promised you would. It's only later that you're beginning to reflect and thinking, whew, I don't, I don't know that I can do that. And it was, since it was voluntary, the temptation is to think, well, I was just being impulsive. I can just change my mind now. No, once a person has made a voluntary promise to do something, it's no longer voluntary. Even if it was a mistake, the person is obligated. We'll look at some boundaries next time as we look in Scripture. God will bless and God will prosper if you do what you say, and God will discipline if you do not do what you say. God knows everything we say before even a word is on our tongue. He's observing. He's listening to all that we say and do, and so he is the witness to every word. Christian is to weigh everything that we say without awareness. The wise person remembers the scriptures that it is a trap for a man to decide something rashly and only later to consider his vows, Proverbs 20, 25. Why is it dangerous to do that rashly? Because God is the witness to every word. And secondly, God is the judge for every word. Second Chronicles 6.22, if a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and he comes and takes an oath before thine altar in this house, then hear thou from heaven and act and judge thy servants, punishing the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. God, who knows all things, who is everywhere present, who sees all things, who is infinitely just, infinitely wise, is going to be the ultimate enforcer. He's going to be the ultimate judge to what is ever said, whatever is promising. He is the judge. Proverbs 19.5, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will not escape. Outside the eternal city, everyone who loves and practices lying. And so the confession says the person taking the oath solemnly calls upon God to witness what he asserts or promises and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he swears. It's because of the influence of Christianity that teaches that God will judge all things. It's why in courts or at the inauguration of a president the oaths and vows are taken with a hand on the Bible. Hand on the Bible goes back to Augustine of the 5th century. And so the European and the British coronation oaths were sworn with a hand on the Bible. In America, we don't have a monarchy, and yet George Washington at his inauguration placed his hand on a Bible. It's a symbol to recognize that God is the higher standard, God is the enforcer, God is the judge of all of our words. That's what's meant at the courtroom when the, you are asked, do you promise to tell the truth? So help me God. May God judge me if I don't tell the truth or keep the truth. An appeal is made to somebody higher. Dabney writes, where an oath is falsely taken, it is a heaven-daring attempt to enlist the Almighty in the sanction of the creature's lie and is thus either the most outrageous levity or the most outrageous impiety of which he can be guilty. Queen Jezebel was very evil, and she was 
determined, the scriptures record, she was determined to have Naboth's vineyard, which she was not allowed to have. She connived a way to get it. She paid men to be false witnesses, 1 Kings 21. She paid them to tell lies in court. So Naboth was brought up on false charges. These false witnesses testified against him. He was condemned. He was taken out. He was killed for something he didn't do. False witnesses put him to death. No one was able to save Naboth. He was destroyed by false witnesses. Did evil prevail? No, God observed, witnessed everything, and ultimately brought Jezebel's sin to justice. There was another man also brought to court, and his enemies couldn't find any example of how he did anything wrong. So they made up lies to condemn him. And at last, two false witnesses were found who twisted his words to claim that he would destroy the temple. It was Jesus Christ. He went to his death by people giving false oaths. He was condemned and executed because of false witnesses. Even his disciples lied to save their own skin, saying, I never knew the man. Sin of breaking the ninth commandment, do not bear false testimony. Put the Lord of glory to death. It's fitting because a lie started the whole rebellion in the Garden of Eden. It was a lie from the deceiver, Satan. You surely won't die. And Adam aligns himself with Satan. And so our Savior is executed for our sins by sinners who were lying. But the same Jesus Christ, who was falsely condemned, has died. He has risen again. He has been glorified, and he has been appointed the judge of all the earth, who will judge every person on that last day in truth. And he will enforce the truth of God, his Father. Even now, God is keeping records to condemn the unbelievers. The scriptures tell us that the unbelievers' works will be brought out and they will be condemned even by every careless word that they have spoken. Jesus Christ is the judge on that last day and he's going to right every wrong. And for every believer who has been deprived, who's been sinned against, who's been insulted, who's been mocked, who's had their lives ruined and their reputations ruined by false reports, they will be vindicated because Jesus Christ is the judge. God is witness to every broken word. God is judge for every broken word. And if we stop there, we've all fallen short and this would not be good news. But God is also the redeemer to pay for every broken word. Leviticus 5, verse 4, if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it's hidden from him, when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he's committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him. Here's an account of someone coming to realize that they've broken their word. And it's been a rash commitment. Literally, if a person swear by blabbing with his lips, 
It's not referring to willful, premeditated lies, which are far worse. But even a rash commitment. What's it called, verse 5? He needs to confess his sin to God and to others. Not just to be sorry, not just to be determined not to do that again. And it required the shedding of blood of the substitute for the broken word. Of course, that lamb is pointing to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross for all of our sins, particularly the sins of every broken promise, every lie, every falsehood. He died and paid for all sin, for all time, for all of his people. And we need to hear that. That wonderful good news, because we know that we all fall short. We flee to Christ for cleansing and for forgiveness. If you're not a professing Christian, I have wonderful good news for you. We live in a society, people all around you, maybe everyone you've ever known in your life has let you down. You feel like you can't trust anyone. And you hear tonight of a God of absolute truth. You can come to him knowing that 100% of the time he will keep his word. And he has promised that God so loved the world that whoever believes in him, he shall not perish but have everlasting life. He will not lie. What a God to be in relationship to. You come to him tonight, put your faith in Christ. And believer, hear this challenge from R.C. Sproul. Christians are required to be models of truth. Our word should be sacred, and we need to cultivate a scrupulous concern for our word. Here is where the depth of true spirituality shows itself. A spiritual person is one whose word you can trust. The Christian has integrity and keeps his promises. In so doing, the person bears witness to the truthfulness of the God being worshipped and served. May it never be that you would need to say, trust me on this, because people know that you belong to Jesus Christ. You're a person committed to keeping your word. Everything you say is the truth. Shall we pray? Our Father, your word tells us that the tongue is a source of all kinds of sin. As speech of the heart, the sins of speech only reflect the heart and how much we need to confess daily, our sins particularly, being running to Christ continually for forgiveness of our sins and asking the Holy Spirit to work in us to be more and more a people of truth because you are the God of truth and we belong to you and we are in your kingdom. May you, our Father, apply your word to us tonight in particular ways that each heart needs to hear it. We thank you for that promise that your word will accomplish the purpose for which you send it. We pray in Jesus' name.